Big Podcast. It's Build a Big Podcast, the marketing podcast for podcasters. I'm David Hooper. Bigpodcast.com is the website. And I've done a couple of episodes about this already, talking about my inclusion in KCRW's radio race this year. If you haven't checked out that, go a few episodes back in the feed. There's one with Scott Wynn. He's a top 10 finalist talking about his experience. And on this episode, Shrikant Joshi from Pune, India. He also participated in this with us. This is how I met him. Shrikant, so glad to have you on here because we all had the same brief, the same topic. Won't you be my neighbor? Before I let you say anything, I'm gonna go ahead and play this. This is Want to Be My Neighbor. This is the four-minute segment that Shrikant did in 24 hours as part of KCRW's radio race. This is Want to Be My Neighbor, Shrikant Joshi. The one context in which the most famous metaphorical question posed by Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor, takes on an absolutely literal meaning is when you're house hunting. Of course, if you've moved houses, you know that there are tons of things to consider when you're house hunting. Like uh, looking at different layouts and imagining where all your new stuff would go. That's Meghna my sister-in-law, married to my younger brother, Sagar. They both recently bought a home in one of the suburban areas east of downtown San Francisco. One day we were going house hunting and there was one particular society which I really liked. Tamil was like, no, I've been here and they don't allow Muslims. This is Kritika. She is married to Tamir. Tamir is Muslim. Kritika is Hindu. They both currently live in Pune, India, which is where I am from. This is a story of these two couples, Meghna and Sagar and Kritika and Tamir, and their house hunting experiences in their respective cities. The, the house we saw in San Ramon. We said no over there because it was 25 years old, plus there was a lot of freeway noise. The house was super beautiful, but it was like 25 years old, like she mm-hmm. said. So we are looking for houses which are starting 2000, 2005-ish. But it was our choice to not go and bid for that house. In Mumbai, it is uh, very broker-dominated. And uh, the first thing brokers will ask you is your name, you know. Automatically, they'll cut down on at least 20 societies. First is, I think, that stare you get when you, you know, yeah. say your name. There's like a pause, very Bollywoodish two-second pause. Then they look at your face and, you know, they'll have that calculation in their head. It's like, oh my God, Muslim, alert, alert, alert. I'm sure it starts from there. Like she was like, hey, why don't you put an oh, offer for yeah, this yeah, house? Yeah. But at that time, we really weren't in a mood to put offer. Mm-hmm. And she, being an agent, was like pushing, hey, this house is really good. This matches all your requirements. Why don't you put an offer for it? And then she just come up with some or the other reason that, hey, yeah, this Yeah, this lighting is less correct, or this correct. backyard is too small. No, no, brokers are very blunt. See, the end of the day, they want to make money. So you can't blame them. They are not wrong. Owners have already informed them what sort of tenants they're looking for. So it's not their fault. Remember, uh... Our parents were supposed to come. We were looking for a two-bedroom. Our landlord actually showed his second house, which was a two-bedroom. <laughs> huh. But the layout was so damn weird. Like, there was so no bad. way. Yeah. So, but yes. what, what did we tell him? Like, we told him, right, no, 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 our parents are not coming yeah, or something. Yeah. We just made up some random yeah. decision so that he doesn't, like, force us to go for that house. Uh, yeah. Yeah, when you have only four options, hmm. people also kind of compromise and live somehow. You know, they manage because there is no other option. Or you increase your rent and move in a better accepting 
society. If you talk to folks staying in the peninsula, they would say like, "Hey, why have you bought the house so far?" But again, that was the uh, you know way in that we had to do. Do you want to buy a bigger house for the same amount of money, or do you want to pay the same amount of money for a smaller house? If you're paying one lakh a month as a rent, then of course your neighbors will not care what religion you are. In case you are hoping for a moral to the story, there isn't one. To be honest. do we really choose our neighbors or is it our neighbors who choose us this piece was produced by me shrikant joshi as a part of kcrw's 24 hour radio race that was shrikant joshi The segment was "Want to Be My Neighbor." This is something we did as part of KCRW's radio race. I didn't do that one. That's Shrikant's. I did another one. Again, go back in the feed for that. But we're going to talk about how Shrikant did this. Let's talk about your background in radio first, because everybody was coming to this with different skills, and you described yourself to me. You said you were a shock jock in India, and I didn't even know that was a thing. I thought that was a strictly American thing, but apparently, one of our exports is shock jocks. America has exported a lot of things to India that it itself doesn't know about one of them being radio our entire concept of radio was picked up from the american style of radio but not the public radio more of the commercial radio the music radio because what happened in india was indian radio stations didn't have permission to do anything that amounted to news or analysis of news so they had to go the entertainment way so the indian radio stations that started picked up american commercial entertainment radio stations and basically picked up them as a template and copied everything that they did so your morning zoo your shock jock and all of those happened to just flow into india in fact our formats for music stations also aped the same american format so we have contemporary hit radio except in an indian context we have a top 40 except it's not billboard but it is uh, run by a different uh, aggregator who's not as famous we never really got around to uh, alternative and uh, classical and all of the other formats because these two formats essentially allowed us to cover the entire indian soundscape in terms of their sound habits or listening habits music listening habits so yeah we we basically took america bottled it into one smooth bottle and gave it to the people to <laughs> consume look i i got to get the sound imaging from one of those stations to play on this i'm imagining something like pune's hits double shot is it that kind of thing like the strictly american style radio but it's in india you're very close to how it actually goes ready uploading system upload complete It is at times like these that I miss my uh, hotkey pad where I would just go and something on the soundboard would play out. Yeah, right? So I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool that we have that that in common though. I think it's interesting and I think it's an example of what we do as podcasters or radio people in that I'm in a closet. I'm in a 5 by 8 closet. And you don't realize where your message is going. You may think mm. that it's just 
a few people, maybe you're on broadcast radio and it's a few people in your geographic area, but because of things like TuneIn, the app, we can hear music from all around the world and radio stations from all around the world. And certainly we can do that with podcasting. And it is interesting to see the cultural impact that we have. And I don't think that people, I think we take it for granted and don't respect how powerful that is. And it's good and bad. There's a double-edged sword to it by all means. I completely agree with you there. It's fascinating. And uh, something else that I realized when you were uh, saying this is uh, when you said two or three people in a geographical area, I suddenly realized that the difference in geographies also has another attribute of population that should be considered here because the same geographical area to which your station serves has maybe two or three listeners listening at the same time, except if you map that onto an Indian situation, you'll have 200, 300 listeners listening at that particular moment in time. India as a market is so vast that even if you manage to capture a small slice of the market, you still have like a pretty big sample to go with. And that's just the density of the population. Yeah. Pune, where you are, how big is that area? The city has about, uh, uh, I think the last census had it at 31 million, but uh, current numbers put it closer to 65. 65 million people. 65 million people. All right. And the district as a whole has nearly, uh, I think, 95 to 100 million people in the district but then the district is much larger and much wider with a with a lot of other towns villages and uh, places coming under its ambit pune metropolitan area is one of the largest metropolitan areas i believe in the world and that has 65 million people it's a very populous city and i'm curious about the wattage of the radio stations here i know here And it wasn't always this way, but in the United States right now, it's 100,000 watts for an FM station. In Mexico, there's been what we call a border blaster, where they would go a million watts and they would blast it into the United States. Wolfman Jack, if you've heard of him, he would do that. The old school FM stations here in the U.S. were 400,000 watts, and that's since changed because they were just blowing the doors off everything. But where you are, are you going for that kind of high wattage to reach even more people or do you not need it because there's so many people in a dense area? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I can't even begin to think of how much uh, 100,000 watts would be because we typically work on 5 and 10 kilowatt power uh, stations and those usually tend to serve about 60 kilometers of radius and within the 60 kilometers of radius, the entire city of Pune gets covered. Yeah. The entire city of Mumbai for that matter. And most major cities typically get covered in 60 kilometer radius. So I think it's, um, I think it is five kilowatt, which uh, beyond which the government actually doesn't give permission for community radio stations. If I'm not mistaken, it is half a kilowatt, which is 500 watts. That's pretty significant though. If you've got a tall tower, it's based on power and also the height of the tower. It's significant. And again, if you've got that kind of density, you can reach a lot of people and I think that's really interesting. The station that I broadcast from for my show, I want to say we're, I don't know, we're maybe 2,500 watts, but it goes all over the metropolitan area here, which is about a million people or so, maybe 2 million, depending on how you're counting it, but nothing like what you guys have. I mean, that's dense, man. Yeah, we are we are a very dense population. And I mean dense in both senses of the word. <laughs> 
Well, this is interesting to me because you're you're in Pune, India, and KCRW, Santa Monica, Los Angeles, California, and you heard about this. I'm curious, how would you hear about a, a small, a small, you know, relatively large station in Santa Monica, California? How did you get into that world? I have always been interested in uh, American radio ever since I figured out that what I was doing in India as Indian radio was basically aping American formats and American styles. So I decided to do a little bit of research and uh, look up what American radio was all about, which is when I got to understand the differences in the dif- the different formats of radio. There's music radio, there is talk radio, there is sports radio, there is tons of other different kinds of radio. And uh, in all of the years of my research, I happened to come across the concept of NPR, which is National Public Radio. I happened to come across this group called AIR, Association of Independents in Radio. And uh, they keep posting about different things that are happening in, in the American market. And in one of their newsletters, they happened to mention that KCRW was holding a 24-hour radio race. I kind of knew what a radio race was, but then I went on the website and looked it up and realized that it was an interesting experiment, except I didn't have any American stories. So uh, I didn't know what to do. But then I decided to sign up on a whim and wait for them to drop the theme. When they did drop the theme, I found it very interesting and I realized that I could make a story. And I asked them if international applicants and international stories were welcome. They said yes. And that's how I got the ball rolling. So it's a worldwide thing. KCRW is well known in the United States as part of the system you mentioned, NPR, which is, as I understand it, it, it's independent, but it's not. There's member stations and there's government funding somehow involved, but there's also local fundraisers. I don't understand how it works, but it's not, you know, not like a corporate thing like we've been talking about where. They're yeah. clusters of stations and all the money comes from the same place. There are a lot of little things that they do and they, they trade. And we'll get into part of that because part of the deal was when you got into KCRW and you were a top 10 finalist, they would put you in something called PRX, which is public radio exchange, which makes yeah. that segment that we just heard available to everybody in that member network. So that's exciting. It could be as many as, I don't know, five or 600 stations that can play that. Because a lot of these NPR stations are like you're talking about, the half a kilowatt. They're very small and they're in very small markets. But if it's a somewhat dense population, or even if it's not, that could be a few hundred people that would listen to you. So let's talk about this segment you did. It's called Want to Be My Neighbor. Yeah. The brief or the topic, they send this out to everybody, all those 100-something teams at the same time. It was Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is an American TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Were you familiar with Mr. Rogers? I was, interestingly, because I had heard of Mr. Rogers a lot in in my uh, research about American radio and American public broadcasting. I found him a very fascinating figure. Also, I'm not sure if I should be uh, saying this out loud publicly on radio, but uh, my daughter took a shine to Daniel Tiger, the animated version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which is Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Speaking of culture that we're exporting, you have that where you are in India and it's broadcast in English? YouTube. It's not on uh, any Indian channels, but uh, okay. YouTube, YouTube on TV. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's uh, another great example of American culture because you mentioned it and this is the truth. Uh, if you go to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., 
the mm-hmm. Society and Culture Museum, like American History. I don't know which one it's in, but they've got his sweater. He would use those cardigans. He would take them on and off. Oh, the and, red cardigan. Yep. And, uh, and the shoes. Interesting thing about the shoes. Do you know why he wore the sneakers? Do you know the story behind that? I, I remember reading something, but I don't really recall exactly why. Yeah, he was doing this thing live when that Mr. Rogers was a brand new show. Very simple setup. Uh, he would uh, have to sneak back and forth between the sets and didn't want to mm-hmm. make any noise. The camera's still running. So ah. you couldn't have the click, click, click of dress shoes or whatever he was wearing. Everybody wore sneakers. It's also a, a symbol, I think. It's symbol that, hey, we're on the air or we're at home and we can relax. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's like a uniform that you put on. Definitely an element of uh, American culture for kids growing up, especially like me in the 70s and lives on. Lives on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The concept, it was sort of based on that. You had something called Want to Be My Neighbor. When you had that brief that was dropped to you, we're going to talk about the time zones in a minute, actually, because it was in the evening, or actually maybe even night at India. Yeah. You get this thing almost in the middle of the night. And did you have an idea of what you wanted to do right then when you saw like, oh, I'm going to do this? Or tell me about coming up with the idea because you only got 24 hours and you're getting ready for bed or at least the people that you're going to interview are getting ready for bed. So that's got to be kind of a weird thing. Yeah. And that, that in fact, was my biggest challenge because uh, A, I didn't have anybody to interview in America except for my brother who uh, stays in San Francisco, which I believe falls somewhere close to KCRW's radius of operation but i'm not really sure about that closer than you or me yeah and it's also (laughs) uh 10 a.m his time when that thing dropped so (laughs) yeah so uh uh, they they gave out the topic uh, won't you be my neighbor at 10 a.m which was 11 30 here in india 11 30 p.m 11 30 p.m in india and i was waiting for it the moment i saw won't you be my neighbor the first thought in my head is obviously mr rogers and the theme song mr rogers neighborhood and all of that starts running but then i realized that that is probably what a lot of other people are also going to be thinking so i i started to make a map of second and third level thoughts i realized that one of the interpretations of the question won't you be my neighbor could be somebody who is house hunting i was kind of toying with the idea because my brother had recently bought a home he bought a home during the pandemic so i was a little worried about all of that and how the pandemic would affect his house hunting both in terms of finances and in terms of uh, you know the risks associated with stepping out and looking at homes and all of that so i remember having conversations with him about that and finally when he did close on a home and all of that it was an interesting process nonetheless so i thought of using that but i didn't know whether that in itself would be an interesting story So what I did was I sent him a set of questions. I wrote down an entire document for him, telling him exactly how to record because by the time he would be able to see the document and record, I would be fast asleep because he had, of course, work to go through during the day and I didn't want to disturb him uh, while he was working. So I sent him a document and uh, told him exactly what questions to record. I didn't have a very clear idea of what I wanted to do because he was my only American voice and I had to make sure that I used his voice and I had a good story out of him. Otherwise, the entire experiment, the entire attempt would basically be for naught. So I sent him a list of five questions around the subject 
of house hunting and neighbors but i didn't really have a solid grip on what i was going to do with it i went to sleep uh, wondering what else i could do and after i woke up he had already sent me his bites him and his wife and i heard those bites and while i was listening to them i realized that he was an indian looking for housing in america he was a minority looking for a housing in america and at that very moment a friend of mine her message seemed to pop up on my screen she hadn't messaged but i was just scrolling through my messages and her name popped up on my screen and i remembered that she was married to a muslim and they were an interfaith couple which made them a minority in the city that they were living in which is mumbai so i dropped her a message asking her whether she would be interested in talking about their house hunting experience because i knew that as a muslim or an interfaith couple finding a house is very difficult in india explain that because we have you described it to me as the same story but different characters yes in the united states we would maybe have something with christian and muslim i hate to say this but there's some people who pick sides on, on that argument where you are it's different though there's muslim but also hindu yes the entire history of hindu muslim is a long one but let me just condense it into this one sentence saying the rivalry between india and pakistan is uh, reflected in the kind of uh, interactions that hindus and muslims tend to have in certain spaces in india not all of them certain spaces in india so uh, one of them is of course the house hunting bit so what tends to happen is that muslim families and muslim people tend to cluster around in certain areas and cities and form pockets of uh, communities in uh, in parts of cities in areas of cities much like what you might see as a chinatown a korea town or a little india in in different uh, cities right. in america right so something similar happens with muslim communities and christian communities and sikh communities and jewish communities they tend to congregate in pockets where there are other people of the same community same faith living together if you're not looking for a house in that particular pocket of the city you're going to have a very difficult time finding housing i'm guessing it's the same for minorities in any geography so what my brother faced in america was likely to be what these two guys were facing in mumbai so you're seeing the parallels of that and that's starting to bring out the thread of the whole piece yes so my brain was parallelly formulating this kind of a parallel existence and trying to see if i could uh, play both their stories in different geographies and sort of i don't know compare and contrast kind of a thing i i i honestly didn't have a clear thread on what i wanted to do but i knew that i had to get both of these stories and uh, put them across in a way uh, that might feel like an interplay of sorts I want to talk about that for a second though because it's something that I see when I do interviews and I know you've done a lot of different radio work not just the shock jock stuff that we talked about earlier but hmm. there seems to be a thing I think with radio people is that you're jumping into an interview or to a story like this a narrative story and you know that there's something there but you don't know exactly what it is and I feel like that's the skill level that we as hosts or producers bring to the table to be able to hmm. spot those threads as common threads and be able to make a story just out of sound bites and I'd love to know your thoughts on that because 
there has to be an element of trust. And I guess over the years, you've learned to trust yourself that the story will emerge if you sit with it or if you ask enough people. Talk more about just the level of trust that you have that this thing's going to work out without having everything worked out ahead of time. There are two ways to construct a story is what I've realized in all of my attempts at making audio pieces. One of them is to start with a story beforehand to know exactly what you want to say, what you what story you want to tell your audiences. And that is typically when you have a person in front of you and you know exactly what you want to talk to them about. So, for example, if you look at everyday heroes as a concept, people who are in your society, like. Sean's story that you did for your Radio Race entry. You knew Sean, you knew his story. You had to, of course, speak to him and elicit the story out of him. But once you had spoken to him, you knew you knew exactly how the story was going to progress. That's one way of making the story is what I've realized, where you know what the main elements of the story are, what the three acts, so to speak, of the story are, what the hero's journey of this story is. And the other is something that I learned from uh, How Sounds, Rob Rosenthal's podcasts and a lot of other people speaking on the same topic is where you let the tape guide you. You basically collect a lot of audio, you collect a lot of tape and then you listen to the tape and pick out moments of the tape that are really, really specific or that catch your ear. And then you take all of those bites and try and weave a story out of them. And that is what I believe is called letting the tape guide you. So that is what I had to do because I didn't have a story to begin with. If I had a clear story to begin with, I wouldn't have had to worry about the tape guiding me because then I would kind of force the tape in a direction that I wanted. But thankfully, because of the difference in time zones and because of the way the whole thing got set up for me, I was lucky enough to find really good bits of tape uh, to basically slap together and construct this final output that you guys uh, now hear as a final product. A question about that, because you're going to bed at India time, your brother is in San Francisco area, and you have to trust him to get that on tape because you've only got so much time. You've got this 24 hours. How did he record his bits. Did you have to explain to him bit by bit by bit, step by step, this is how to record this? Because you were really trusting that in addition to that he would have a good story coming out of his mouth. Yeah, it it was one of the few times I blindly trusted my brother and he actually came through. (laughs) 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 No, I'm just kidding. He's actually a very, very sweet guy and uh, um, he's always come through for me. And I knew that he would definitely come through for me. Also because uh, I have subjected him to a lot of my audio experiments before. Ah, okay. He was experienced. (laughs) Yeah, kind of experienced, but I'm slightly, and I'm not sure if I should say this word but i'm slightly anal about things yeah so <laughs> perfectionist <laughs> well that's just sugarcoating the truth <laughs> but yeah well, that's what a good producer is you're you're taking charge you're taking charge <laughs> so so how so, did they do it what equipment did they use did they have specialized stuff already did they have a microphone just a phone just a phone and you already knew this from your experimentation that the new phone mics uh, did you use just a voice memo or a special recorder I had already experimented uh, uh, with a f- few small bites for my audio experiments uh, before. So I knew the kind of phone he had, the kind of audio he was able to produce. 
and I knew that there were apps that did good noise cancellation by default. One of them being the app that asked him to download Dolby On. Uh, so I sent him an entire document giving him step-by-step instructions on which app to download, how to start recording, when to start recording, how to ask questions. So I, I made my brother and his wife, my sister-in-law, to sit across from each other and ask each other the question. So if I had to patch in my voice as a question, it would not feel awkward and it would still feel like they were answering my question even though they were answering each other's question. Right. Because uh, I I needed to make sure that it it still formed sort of a conversation uh, if I needed it to be that. Because I, at that point, I didn't really know. That's something I want to point out that you're thinking ahead. As I say, play in chess. You're a few moves ahead. You've already done the experimentation. You've already done enough production to know here's how to work with certain audio clips or here are my options for working. That's super important because a lot of people, if you just gave them this assignment, they, uh, uh, they, I'm always amazed these things like radio diaries. I don't know if you've heard that, like how they're able to work with the tape they get and they must train people. And I don't think that's insulting to people for you to tell people exactly what you want. With Dolby On, you probably gave him step one, like you said, download this app. Step two, press the big red button. Step three. Exactly. You have to do that. You can't just assume especially in a situation like yours where you had 24 hours and your first eight of it or so was you in bed because the time zone was working against you. Yeah. I started my radio race inverted uh, where most other participants uh, in the same geographies in America, they got to think about their ideas, flesh them out, work them out a little bit on on whiteboards and uh, make mind maps and whatnot for the first six hours. I had to be absolutely sure of what I was looking at before I went to bed because whatever output I got at that point would be my starting point because where I would start, my brother would be asleep and I couldn't wake him up to get more audio out of him. So I had to be absolutely sure that whatever audio I got out of him was audio that I could work with. It was imperative for me. At that point, if I didn't have good enough audio, I wouldn't have been able to uh, do the radio race. I I can tell you that for sure. Well, you would have had to restart. When I talked to Scott Wynn, the thing that he did is he had one, two, three, or four ideas. The first couple of them didn't work out. Hmm. That's one of the things I felt lucky when I interviewed my guy, Sean, is that I was able to text him. And within 90 minutes of getting that brief, we were rolling tape. And that was only because he's like, okay, I get off work in an hour. Can you do it then? I'm like, okay, cool. Hmm. But it was the same kind of thing. It's like, man, when time is ticking and that's not the optimal thing, I really like the challenge, but you do have to plan things out. And that's why I wanted to go deeper into that. What did you do about the second couple, the the interfaith couple that you're talking about that's actually in India? Did you do something similar with them or did you actually go to them? The second couple was actually kind of a lucky break for me because uh, when I realized that I could... Uh, do this compare and contrast thing. I sent Kritika a message and asked her if she would be interested. Thankfully, she said yes. If she wasn't available at that point, I again wouldn't have been able to do the story because I couldn't think of another person who might become available at that point. It's still a matter of finding the right person at the right time. Finding a person who would be comfortable talking about their house hunting experience as a Muslim in a Hindu majority city like 
Mumbai or any other city in India for that matter was always going to be difficult also because the subject is a little fraught with tension here in India but because this was for an american audience i guess she was a little more comfortable and uh, didn't have to uh, worry all that much although if i had told her that this would also play out in india maybe she might not have wanted to give her own name out it's a dicey topic here in india especially at the moment where uh, religious tensions have again sort of begun to run high but they are still at a very low simmer but you never know what could happen Let's talk about that for a second. I'm finishing up on a project about gentrification. So I'm interviewing a lot of local people here in Nashville, and that's actually how I found out Sean's story, which I was super happy about. It's like, oh, this is perfect because I'm I'm already ready for it. I have found the more local something goes, the more interesting it is to other locals. And in some cases, as you mentioned, the American audience, people think that they're safe. Like, oh, okay, it's 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 not going to be released here. And if your neighbor knows what you're thinking literally <laughs> that's going to be something that goes beyond just this 4 minute segment my question is do you think about that do you do any i guess hand holding or babysitting or do you ever have to when you're dealing with an interview or any kind of something that's going to be broadcast kind of let people know that it will get out to the world and they need to be aware of what they say how do you maneuver those situations or do you just let them rip and just whatever happens happens it's actually one of my biggest dilemmas every time i sit down to record an interview uh, that can have larger implications on the one hand i want them to be absolutely honest and candid because uh, it allows me to get a more raw picture of the situation on the other hand that much rawness in the picture also means that they can get hurt accidentally or deliberately by someone it's a very thin line that i have to walk the first time i realized that this kind of a line existed was when i was recording a series on uh, mental health and mental illnesses which are very much a taboo in india speaking about them is still not welcomed in general society so to speak the more educated classes are now a little more open to the concept of mental illnesses and finding a therapist to help the sanity of your mind and what not but majority of indians still look at mental health and mental illnesses as something that you're lacking in it's mm. we're getting there we're slowly getting yeah, there yeah again it's the same story different characters cuz i think <laughs> most americans can connect with that yeah when i was doing those interviews especially with for example someone who is schizophrenic now schizophrenia is not an illness that people understand very easily but the uh, popular notion about schizophrenia is a little unfair to all uh, people who suffer from it or who live with schizophrenia so uh, to be uh, to put it in a better way people who live with schizophrenia i want this person who is living with schizophrenia to be honest about his experiences but at the same time i know that when i put that person's voice on air and someone happens to hear his voice they will inevitably learn about his schizophrenia which he may have wanted to keep secret from these other people right but now i have exposed him to all of those other people is that right ethically on my part i don't know to be very honest because i have asked this person for permission he knows the stakes involved i may have 
what's the opposite of exaggeration? I may have undersold right how wide this thing is going, but at the same time, I have undersold it because I don't want to increase his expectations of popularity, publicity, or whatever. It's a very thin line, and I'm not really sure what the right thing to do here is. What I usually end up doing is I usually end up being very candid and very honest with them about what I'm trying to do, what I'm hoping will happen, and what is the worst case scenario that might happen. So once I put these three things across, I sit back, cross my fingers, and pray slash hope really hard that they say yes to my proposal. I love that you're doing that. I think that's a good way to do it. Say this is what's likely to happen. Here's the best case scenario, worst case scenario, or the yeah, maybe not best or worst, but these are the two extremes on the other end of that. Yeah, I think that people like you and me, we live behind a mic, and we don't think it's weird to one hear the sound of our own voice. That can be something that I'm surprised I run into a lot. Of people, oh, I just don't like the sound of my own voice. Okay, cool. I can understand that. But I had somebody approach me about doing a documentary, being a part of it. I'll just go, I'll say the network is on HBO, Hmm. which is on one hand, hey, that's cool. I could be part of something on HBO. Hmm. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Do I really want this getting out everywhere? And I was so happy for the experience because it put me into the mindset of all the people that I interview Hmm. that it wasn't something that I was comfortable with initially. And I had to think about those things so I can, I think, better approach. And I think you've got a great way of doing it, giving them, you know, here's what could happen. Here's the other thing that could happen. Here's what's likely to happen. Hmm. Because I I think people just want to not have like a gotcha moment. We've seen reality television and we've seen sound bites on news channels and things. And things do get misconstrued and it doesn't have to be major politicians for that to happen it could be you (laughs) and you don't want to be made a fool of because you are really trusting somebody with your story especially something like mental illness and that you don't know what somebody's going to do with that story yeah yeah i don't remember who said this to me but very early on in my radio career somebody told me remember your first hot mic moment and remember the embarrassment that you felt (laughs) that is what a lot of your interviewees are going to feel after they have done an interview with you it is your job to make sure that they are comfortable while doing the interview and after the interview and so i tend to attempt everything in my power to make them comfortable before the interview so that they don't have to think twice during and after all right i I know i'm I'm going through uh, we're going to get back to radio race in a second i i got to ask you about the first hot mic moment because i actually i'm writing another book on podcasting and I'm talking about hot mics and, and that's the advice. You have to consider that every mic is hot and every yes. radio person has experienced this. So I'm, I'm curious what your hot mic moment was that you remember. All right. So um, I'm, uh, this is my, uh, this, these are my training days and uh, the radio station that I was interning at that, that I was uh, training at they would uh, they would let us trainees go live on air at night when everybody was asleep. So between the hours of 12 midnight to 4 in the morning. When in theory, no one is listening. But when you've got a hot yeah. mic moment, you find out exactly how many people are listening. 
Oh, you do. Oh, you do. And how? So, um, so the whole idea was for us to get comfortable with the system, to get comfortable with the software, to get comfortable with the console, the faders, and whatnot, and basically uh, get to a point where you can manipulate the whole thing because you get ninety seconds to be on air, and you have to uh, play hooks of songs. You have to uh, do your talk spiel and at the same time if you have calls coming in you have to take them on air and then play them out because live calls weren't allowed at the radio station that i was working in they were always uh, deferred live as in we would take the call edit them out for clarity and uh, crispness basically pick out bites that we needed and then we would play out just those bites right so what used to happen was once the mic went off and the songs were playing we would start taking calls from people and it was at that point that i realized that there are a lot of night owls in my city of pune who loved listening to radio and who would very gladly talk to a radio show host who had opened their phone lines one of my first few days i was manning the phone lines while doing this live night transmission as we called them the first few times i was very diligent about making sure that my mic wasn't hot making sure that it was uh, on a different channel and not going on air but the third day i was very tired because i had done a double shift working for another radio show host as their producer i was also scheduled for night transmission because cricket matches were happening so i was supposed to give out score updates every 15 minutes every 30 minutes i was extremely sleepy and there was nobody to relieve me and i was almost almost dropping off and um, i happened to take a call can you guess what happened <laughs> you left it on <laughs> yes i left both my mic and the caller's mic on and it was the craziest caller ever right <laughs> it was i don't remember the caller all i remember is my cell phone ringing constantly while i'm taking the call and i'm like boss i'm taking a call i'll call you back later he's like your mic is on <laughs> switch it off So the boss heard you. Yeah, that's probably the worst guy to hear you. <laughs> yeah. The boss heard me. The entire city of Pune that was awake or rather the awake parts of Pune heard me. They heard my boss screaming at me through the phone. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, well the uh the uh, facade of you being the slick radio host was killed on that mm -hmm. evening. <laughs> it was but then uh, it also helped humanize me to the rest of the uh, listeners because they realized well this is no god this is just another idiot like us sitting late at night working his ass off Casey Kasem said the same thing if you've heard those Casey Kasem tapes i don't know if you're familiar with him America's top 40 I know Casey Kasem i've never heard oh i i will i will get them for you but if if you look up yeah Casey Kasem death dedication and he was mad about coming out of a a pointer sisters song it happened to be a, an upbeat number as he said and going into a death dedication he didn't mm. think the pacing was right now we're up to our long distance dedication and this one is about kids and pets and a situation that we can all understand whether we have kids or pets or neither it's from a man in cincinnati ohio and here's what he writes Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request, but I'm quite sincere and it'll mean a lot if you play it. Recently there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuggles, but he was most certainly a part of Let's come start again. From coming out of the record. Play the record, okay? Please. 
see, when you come out of those up-tempo damn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions. And then you got to go into somebody dying. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but damn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone? Okay, I want a damn concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a f***ing up-tempo record every time I do a damn deaf dedication. This is a last damn time. I want somebody to use his f***ing brain to not come out of a damn record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo, and I got to talk about a f***ing dog dying. Boy, this is f***ing ponderous, man. Ponderous, f***ing ponderous. That did not end up on the cutting room floor. Somehow it got broadcast all over the network. Somebody probably taking revenge uh, of the Ouch. satellite. And a lot of people heard Casey in a different way. It's a, a familiar voice that all Americans have heard. Yeah. To hear him like that, it was like, oh, but he said later on, he said, yeah, that humanized me. Yeah. It ended up being a great thing. It wasn't good at the time and it was embarrassing and I kind of looked like a jerk, but you know, it humanized me. I've never had anything like that. I've uh, said some words that are not allowed by the FCC on mm-hmm. online, but <laughs> that was as a guest, not as a host, fortunately. But all my stuff is edited. I, I still, when I'm in the studio, I'll always consider the mics to be live and, and broadcasting and definitely recording. Always consider every mic inside a live studio to be hot. Yeah. Well, you have to, you know, I'm sure it's probably the same way in India as it is here, you've got CCTV and, and doorbell cameras and mobile phones. You just have to assume that somebody's taping something in the vicinity. Yep. And if something yep. crazy goes, they're going to point that on you. But I think that shows that the human element of what we are. And I think it's good for people to go through that because when you are interviewing a guest, you can connect better with them. I just saw this thing about Adele an Australian, I guess it was a television host. He flew all the way to London. He had an exclusive for all of Australia for an interview with Adele Hmm. about her new record. And during the interview, it came out that he had not even listened to the new album. Adele did not like that. So this guy had flown, you know, 10,000 miles or whatever to get to her. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they killed it. They killed the exclusive all of Australia interview for him. And, And I think it's like, the artists that we're interviewing, you know, they're people too. And the people that we interview in our neighborhood are people that we have to live with maybe. At the same time, let me flip this question though. This is something I've been thinking about. How do you keep yourself grounded where you are not drawn into a story? You have somebody and they're on hard times, for example, or you have somebody and they do have, you know, a mental situation, schizophrenia or uh, drug abuse or whatever they're going through. How do you keep grounded where you don't take that home after the fact, or do you? Uh, okay. Um, I do, I do both. I do take them home after the fact because they have given me the respect of telling me their story. They have given me the respect of opening up their rawest spots for me to see and touch and feel and expose to the rest of the world. So I do take them home with me. It's the least I can do for them. I need to be in their shoes to understand exactly what they went through. So I don't mind living a little bit of their story in my head to understand uh, uh, their to to understand their emotions better, to empathize with them better. But at the same time, um, there is a part of my brain that is always in producer mode that's telling me, okay, now you need to step back and look at the larger picture because you have only. 12 hours left. 
so i guess having a sort of disconnected brain helps in that regard yeah i think that's the interesting thing about radio race is that you've got this balance you know in a, a different way but it's that you've got to get this thing done if you're going to participate and it's not going to be perfect there's probably better ways to tell the story if you had a little bit more time or sleep or whatever more you needed resources mm. let's talk about that what did you do as far as piecing everything together you've got music and everything were you pretty happy with everything did you feel rushed because again you're on the the inverse curve of uh, what the american people were doing just based on your time zone in that i guess you know more or less you've got one day to do it and not even you're not even going to stay up that night because the night is the day for us and it's due that day at approximately 11:30 a.m. indian standard time which i think translates to uh, 10 p.m. uh yeah. 10 p.m. american 10 p.m. yeah so around that time i had both sets of bites from my brother and sister in law as well as these this couple this interfaith couple in mumbai after i'd heard those bites after, uh, the the couple in fact i interviewed them specifically live as in i i got them on the phone and i got them to sit in front of a recorder and record their end of the conversation while i recorded my end of the conversation at that point i knew i had decent enough material for a compare and contrast kind of a story but i had to be absolutely sure of that because after that i was not going to get my brother to contribute anything by way of his voice so i decided to give it a go and i decided whatever happens i am going to create a 4 minute piece out of this so i started pulling out bites i started placing them i briefly contemplated writing uh, you know transcribing all of it but then i realized it would take a lot of time and uh, automated transcriptions for indian accents are not always all that good and how much tape did you have so my brother gave me about 17 minutes in the first iteration and uh, this couple gave me another 34 minutes whoa and... so you get so you got about an hour then yeah for a 4 minutes story yeah yeah okay <laughs> that that's pressure yeah yeah i also called my brother after talking to this couple before my brother uh, went to sleep and spoke to him in a little more detail to understand his house hunting process and questions i had about his house hunting process but i didn't use any of those bites what i did end up using was the original set of 17 minutes that he gave me and um, that turned out to be more than enough i started cutting those bites up into uh, juicy chunks or interesting pieces of audio and I put them on a DAW on a DAW and started juggling them shuffling them up and down on Hindenburg tried to figure out if any of them formed sort of a coherent sequence it took me a lot of time and now that I think back I realize that I should have spent an hour transcribing just those bytes and used transcriptions right and then make audio out of it right uh, which would have been much better and much quicker but Well, live and learn, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you would think that. Hey, I've only got four minutes here. I can remember four yeah. minutes worth of stuff or uh, about, and then edit it down to where it is four minutes. But yeah, it starts to get really complicated when you've got, especially that much tape at the beginning, because some of it's gone. You've already made the decision, yeah. and hmm. it's not even part of the story anymore. Or you've got to go back and look at it because you think, oh, I could have used that tape that I cut previously. So it can get pretty complicated. it did get complicated in fact i have now decided that once i have 
bytes that I want to use, I will first transcribe them. Yeah. And then start working on a textual story and then convert it into like an audio kind of a thing. Right. I will still play with the audio. I'll still try and figure out if I can extract some more out of the remainder audio, the one that I've discarded and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, text-based storytelling first, audio-based storytelling follows. Well, something that I'm doing for this big documentary project that I'm working on, and we're talking dozens of interviews and the interviews could be an hour or two, mm. is I'm going through all of the audio and I'm taking mm. those sound bites and then I'm throwing them into buckets. Yeah. So I've got one about sex, one about drugs, and one about rock and roll, let's say. Mm. And then what I can do when I'm on the rock and roll segment, then I'm going to transcribe those and just those. And I know the basic topic of it. I kind of did that on my radio race and that one of the things, Tasha Limley, who's with the local NPR here, WPLN, she had helped me. She said, basically, you've got three stories here. Mm. And I had segmented things very very similarly to that, like the beginning, the middle, and the end, let's say. And it's one way of working with stuff. But in the end, man, when you got that tape, you can imagine, and I'm just thankful it's not the the old magnetic tape that we used to have where you had yeah. strips and strips of tape. And that's what they used to have to do and just hang it up and then splice it in. And at least we've got that and we can move it around. Hindenburg is great for that. So I think that was a good choice on your DAW. I'm actually a, a Magic Vegas Pro user. Uh, but I've recently shifted to Hindenburg because of uh, some of its interesting features, which is basically the fact that it allows me to group individual bits of audio and keep them aside as uh, ready to insert pieces yeah. that I can then juggle around, shuffle around. Well, that's kind of the bucket, I suppose. I, I'm yeah, it somewhat is. familiar with Hindenburg. I've got a copy of it, but have never really used it. <laughs> but it's made for this kind of stuff. That's the thing. It's like people... Yeah. They've got preferences, uh, Pro Tools. A lot of my guys that have been in music, they stick with Pro Tools. I think it's overboard. I think just for uh, something like this, like a narrative piece, I think Hindenburg's perfect for it. Although some people would argue that it's not as powerful as far as some of the hardcore audio. And I'm like, eh, it's 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 good enough for, for this. And it's uh, even better for the narrative form. At the end of the day, it boils down to what your editing process looks like. My editing process is basically collecting bits of audio and then moving them around like a jigsaw puzzle to see what picture comes out the best and brightest. A lot of people use Hindenburg differently than I do. It's all a part of what working process they have and uh, how, how that particular software fits into it. A lot of people I know do their editing solely and purely on uh, destructive uh, editors like Soundforge or Isotope. I don't know how they do it, but apparently they do. Well, I do it. I'll tell you why. I think it forces me to make a decision. Ah. And I see a lot of guys like, well, I could do this and I could do that. And I can always go back and I've probably got the clip that I can re-import, for example. But I can see, I used to be more pro-destructive editor with like a linear interview. And then I did this radio race project. I'm like, mm, I can kind of see why these guys like the non-destructive. It does force you to make a decision. Then you're like, hey, I just got to move forward. I can't. Sometimes I think people get caught up. They spend too much time on something and then they don't pace themselves. Did you have that issue at all? Did you find that you've got two hours left? Oh my gosh, I've got to get this thing done. I, I should have not spent so much time on this other thing. Uh, with the radio race, I did definitely have that problem because I hadn't transcribed and uh, till almost 8 p.m. here at night when the deadline was 11.30. Till almost 8 p.m., I was still 
kind of refining my uh, script, refining the audio, oh, wow. adding a little bit of my own narration. So you hadn't really even voiced the whole thing then. I had done like a rough draft of my narration, but I hadn't really done the final draft of it, the final take. Uh, and so I was still kind of refining the script to see if I could add something, subtract something. I actually did the final take of my narration at around eight. Thirty-five, I think. I'll have to go back and. So you've got three hours to go. Yeah, I, I have three hours to go. But at that point, my script is pretty much set. So all I had to do is take the narration, chop it up into bits, and uh, just slot it into the Hindenburg tracks. What that meant was I had very little time to do the sound design and the mixing bit of it, which um, I still think I. Didn't do very well on that front. Explain to me how you did that. Then it's funny because you were actually one of the people who were like, "How did you do your sound design?" I'm like, "Uh, picked a royalty-free music." <laughs> there wasn't really much sound design for me. It, it, did you do a little bit more? Because you know, some of those guys, if you looked at the Radio Race tag, they had full-on musicians in there doing custom music, and I was like, "Oh, I'm way over my head yeah. with this." What did you do for your music and things? I am. Uh... Okay, how do I put this? I am not I'm not tone deaf, but I'm aesthetically blind when it comes to designing <laughs> I'm just not good at any kind of design, be it visual or audio or or just any kind of design. I do have a keen sense of observation, if you might call it that. So I have a fair idea of how music is used in a lot of radio pieces that are typical of uh, say NPR or right. Uh, one of these stations. What I did was I attempted to use a similar kind of music structure and I picked a music piece that went closely with the emotion of my audio piece. Funny thing is that same music piece, which was from Blue Dot Sessions, by the way, and I, I commend them uh, a lot. I think anybody who wants royalty-free music should take a look at sessions.blue. It's a brilliant website and it's a brilliant collection of music. That same piece of music that I used was also used by another Radio Race participant. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't remember the... That's the worst feeling. Yeah, but... Well, uh, that's what happens when you use royalty-free music. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yep. Probably using the same thing, but... As long as uh, it fits into the mood of, of the piece, I I think that isn't much of a concern or a problem. Did you have to search a long time for it? Because I'm wondering, was it on the front page? How, how Out of all the songs that you could get from one of these libraries, and there's only a <laughs> hundred something, I mean, that seems like so crazy to me that somebody would have actually had the same one. <laughs> See, here's where the website actually came in handy. The website has filters that allow you to choose for genre, mood, tempo, the number of instruments and a lot of other filters. So I just adjusted the filters according to what I thought the sense of my audio piece was. And it popped up like five results out of which I chose the third one because the first two sounded a little too peppy. The last two sounded a little too somber. And I said the third one just sounds right. And and did you look at the time as well? Did you put in four minutes max under four minutes? No, because uh, uh, I do have the skill of being able to chop up audio pieces and then patch them such that they don't sound awkward. You weren't just playing the music and, all right, There was a, it sounds like there was a little more work to making it match. Just a little bit more work to ensure that it came in at the right moments and uh, drifted off at the right moments. But right. that was about three or four places in the entire uh, piece. 
Yeah, you make it sound easy, but that's not as uh, that's a skill <laughs> that I think people should develop, like beat matching. And oh, yeah. one of the things that I do is I, I, I'll start with a break. No, beat matching is something that everybody, everybody who's working in audio should at least know what it is all about, and if possible, learn how to do right. at least the very basic versions of a it. basic cut for time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes in handy in so many places, and it just elevates your piece to a different level if you can do it correctly. Well, it sounded great. It sounded when I went back and listened to it. Because the first time, you know, when I heard all these, I was like, oh, this is my competition. This is my, <laughs> and I was curious what everybody had done with the same brief, but it was interesting. And you had this happen with your own piece too. You go back and you listen to something, you've had a little bit more distance on it. I'm like, wow, he did a really good job on that music and it seemed to match. And it's interesting. I think what a skilled person can do with just a few of those skills, beat matching and be able to fade in and out and also pick the right songs that you can do a lot with royalty-free music. Oh, yeah. It's not much money. I've got licenses on a few of these things, and there's the free YouTube library, which really isn't bad if you're willing to dig. Mm -hmm. But you've got to look. And I think what people do sometimes, like if the podcast, for example, is about excellence and entrepreneurship, they would search for excellence and pick the mm -hmm. first thing that everybody else who's done that has picked. I actually mm -hmm. heard a song that we had used in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. I was there to pick up a friend of mine, a friend of mine who was in surgery. So I'm in there for a couple hours waiting for her to get out and heard a song that I had used on like a hemorrhoid ad or something. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's the funniest thing in the world. But, <laughs> you know, it's weird though. Like if that ad had been a national campaign, for example, and then I had used it in my theme song for the podcast or a documentary that was on a very serious discussion, I would have to go change that music. So it is something to be aware of. With me, I also have to consider the fact that $1 equals 75 rupees. Buying music for my audio piece isn't always going to be possible. Even though I'd love to pay the artists, I still have to consider my own wallet, my own pocket and out-of-pocket expenses because 75 rupees is a lot. And although $1 doesn't really mean much, by way of American expenditure or American income in that sense, 75 rupees does mean a lot. So Yeah, the economics of, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely yeah, right. So, <laughs> so I, had to, I had to rely on royalty-free music pieces. And uh, I have now figured out a lot of places where I can get really good royalty-free free music and still be able to, you know, make a good, good audio out of it. Plus, I hope that whatever I'm creating also gives those people some exposure out of my work. Uh, and I wish I could do more for them. Just to put your mind at ease. And for, so let's get clear on the definition that when you're saying royalty free, uh, like I would use that to say that there are not licensing fees other than maybe like a buyout. But you're saying that this music actually didn't cost you a thing. You could download it and use it for free with no cost. Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. 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 So the other, how I would use royalty free would be, there's no licensing fee, but okay. what the musician, not really the musician, but the songwriter, the person who owns the underlying composition, if there is airplay on a station, there are performing rights organizations that should catalog that and should pay that musician or the, again, the writer and the publisher rather, not necessarily the performers in Europe, the performers would get paid. 
but there should be some money that would come to those people. So if that makes anybody feel better, if you're using a music that you downloaded for free, don't download Adele or don't download Britney Spears. I'm talking about stuff that you actually have the right to use for your podcast, but somebody in theory is going to get paid. And obviously it's, it's sort of cool. I think, I think as a musician, if I threw myself up there, if somebody actually used it, you want your music heard, just like we want our, our podcast yeah. and our radio things heard. So sometimes there's a secondary payoff for those guys too. That's what I'm hoping I did. Of course, Blue Dot Sessions is quite popular among the podcasting uh, circuit. They are associated with a lot of very interesting podcasts as well. I believe Reply All occasionally uh, uses their music and uh, a couple of others also do. From what I remember on their website, you were allowed to use that free as long as you gave them credit, as long as you attributed yes. them yep. uh, in the show notes or in the description or I think also in audio. Yeah, that's how the YouTube one is. You have to mm-hmm. just attribute. And it's usually, in, I think, in the episode notes. That's kind of the Creative Commons license. Sometimes they'll release huh. through that. But yeah, I mean, it's a good way. It, it, you may be talking about Breakmaster Cylinder. And yeah. there's another guy, and I cannot remember his name, but they actually did a documentary on him. He is probably the most played artist on the internet. Uh, for this kind of stuff, but nobody would know his name. They did a documentary on him because several years ago, he just decided to make his music available to people. What's happened with him is so many YouTubers are using his music. He's getting those royalties that I'm talking about from BMI, ASCAP, whatever his performing rights organization is. And he's also getting things like Reply All where they'll hire him for custom music. So he's become known as sort of the... Reply All would have something like internet culture. They... uh hmm. He's such a, he's a quirky artist. So when you hear a funny song like that, like it's mailbag, it's mailbag. It's like they, they call him and he's making, he's making money from that, but he's not making money from maybe something from the library he put out. But this guy just likes to do music and he found a way to do it, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, it's incredible. So, um, and sometimes believe it or not, people like to look up that stuff on Spotify and stream it and they make royalties from that as well. The reply all did that interesting thing about hold music from your telephone. Yep. 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 And that was probably like a buyout, but there's somebody out there that, you know, would listen to that on Spotify. They just like it. So (laughs) apparently there were people who did and that, that music raked up a lot of listens on Spotify. I remember that episode. It was quite fun. Yeah. Well, I love it because, you know, that's the business I was in for so long. It is interesting though. I, I think that, you know, you have a lot of people, they, Spotify just released their Pod City, which is a huge campus in LA, and they released photos of it. And I posted some of those yesterday. People, oh, sure, because you're not paying artists. You're not paying artists. It's like, well, they are, but it's such a complicated thing that the technology is moving so fast, faster than we can figure out a way to get everybody paid. And it's old system versus the new system. I'm actually a little worried about Spotify and the pace at which they're. Uh buying things they're devouring it literally you finish this thing up you made the decisions you got the music you somehow got this thing down to four minutes miraculously after an hour of tape and that's one of those things that i'm still amazed any of us did that because it's it's not easy what would you do differently and what will you do differently next year because i know you're going to be doing this next year One thing I definitely want to do is uh, get another person on the team, at least one, hopefully two, to use as A, soundboards and B, uh, work mules. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have a 24-hour operation here. Uh, 
you know, you take one shift, get you some Americans, get you somebody in Australia. Uh, (laughs) I I wonder about that though, because, you know, I was going to partner with two people. I had an engineer I was going to partner with. I was going to partner with my friend Tasha from the NPR affiliate I mentioned. And she was available to me a little bit. She said, you know, call me or whatever. And we did and text me if you need any help, if you get stuck. But one of the things that I really appreciated doing it alone was that I didn't have to ask permission to make a decision. And mm-hmm. how do you think that that would affect you? I understand the benefit of, like you said, having your work mules, getting that team on it, buddy. But I think the decision-making process would be a lot more complicated. Are you pretty good at working with a team like that? Have you had that experience? And how are, how's that better than working alone or, or worse? Uh, it, it has its own set of advantages and disadvantages. But one huge advantage would be I wouldn't have to do all the thinking myself. Having another person would let me think different things yeah because that other person would come with their own point of view with their own perspective and that would either enhance my own perspective or tell me why my perspective wasn't right what happened with me making my own decisions was also i had to make a lot of decisions in a hurry which would probably not have been the case had i had another person working with me intellectually on the problem two heads are better than one and all of that you know I would definitely want to try it out next year with another person working with me and, you know, sort of collaborating with me on, on the project. But uh, this this other person would have to definitely have different skill sets than yeah. my own. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because when I had heard your piece for the first time, we were talking about it. And what I thought about when I thought about San Francisco was the crazy dot-com boom there and how housing prices have gone crazy and people have been pushed out of houses. And Hmm. that area, if we think about gentrification, we think about housing, San Francisco is one of the ones that we use as an example here in this country. And you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. It was interesting to me that you could look at it from a completely different perspective. And I think that's the interesting thing about Radio Race. And one of the things I was so excited to listen to at the very end was the different perspectives that everybody brought to that same question. And I do think that working within a team within a single episode, it it's it can make the thing stronger because you're able to push back against those things and find problems and strengthen those problems. So yeah, that would be an interesting thing, I would imagine. And I agree with you on having different skill sets because if you can bring somebody in who's great at music and that's one thing off your plate, you know, one less thing for you to worry about. Exactly. And especially when I know that I'm not good at music or any kind of design. Well, no, 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 no. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm cutting you off there because I think the, I think the music worked great. And it's interesting to me that where you found it, especially working with the limitations, which I think that's probably a great way to just wrap this whole conversation up is that we had 24 hours of limitation. We had a topic limitation. You had time zone limitations. I don't know if that was bad. You know, maybe it's good. I mean, sometimes limitations are great. It was just such a fun experience. I almost didn't do it because I was working on this book and I'm working on this big documentary project. And I thought, I don't have time to put a week into this. I'm really glad that I did. and met guys like you, met guys like Scott, met this great community. I'm like, okay, this is cool. It's really fun to have like people that are passionate about something. They're going to jump in on a weekend, even though it's not paid. I didn't care about the prizes bragging rights would be nice. Top 10, you got it. So you got some bragging rights and yeah. you know, it, it's, 
it was cool. It was cool. I, I'm going to encourage a lot of people to get involved in it. I'd like to do my own, honestly. I'd like to organize one, but I don't have the draw of KCRW. <laughs> Let me know. I'll I'll probably be the first one to uh, send in an entry. Well, it might be just you and me then. It'd be with two entries. <laughs> we'll we'll take that. Two to begin yeah. with and then 200 eventually. Well, I have thought about doing just to challenge myself to just, I'm going to do a two or three minute piece or I'm going to do something. I need to get through some other projects first. And that's the issue. I think this forced me to jump in right away when maybe I wasn't ready or the timing wasn't perfect. So I appreciated that, but I'm going to look for more of these because I'm sure there are various options, but it is cool. It's cool to see, you know, people just passionate about something. And I think that that sometimes is lost on us as podcasters. You know how this is because you're doing a lot of voiceover, Mm. which I think is unbelievably hard as far as mentally just to be in that room by yourself just reading a script and you feel like you're alone you know you gotta do what you gotta do i guess yeah by the way have you heard of uh, this thing called nanorimo you're talking about the writing one yeah there's one for podcasting too the november national was it national writing month National November Writing Month, that's NaNoWriMo. And there's one called NaPodPomo, which is National Podcast Post Month, 30 episodes in 30 days. I didn't know about NaPodPomo, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll have to look that up. What what I was basically getting at was uh, I looked at KCRW as a variation of NaNoWriMo, but uh, in 24 hours, which is why I was attracted to it in the first place, I think. It's something I've been realizing only now when I'm speaking to you and when you've brought all of these wonderful points up. Uh, having a deadline sometimes gets really good work out of you. Probably because of the deadline or probably because you want to have that feeling of having surmounted an obstacle or uh, done something when the odds were against you. Well, that's what I needed. I needed to just finish something because I'm on these big projects and I haven't finished anything. Also for me to do it alone, I think was helpful too, because it's nice when, you know, sometimes you have to do things alone. Your team quits or you fire your team or there's no budget or there's whatever. (laughs) Sometimes it's on you, buddy. You know that. So it is, it is. It's nice to know that if you had to put in music that you could do it and you did. So the pieces want to be my neighbor. That's a question. And where can people find information about you, Srikant? Because you've got some things online. And if you need Hindi voiceover, you've got American with Indian accent voiceover. You've got voiceover things. If you need a shock jock with an Indian <laughs> perspective, Srikant is available. Uh, where can people find more information about you? Well, uh, I do have a website that I... Uh, uh, it's a very small website. Uh, I It's 42quirks.com. That's 42 uh, numbers and Q-U-I-R-K-S, 42quirks.com. I'm also available on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. Just look for Srikant Joshi. Twitter, I've I've been lucky enough to land my own name. So uh, my handle on Twitter is S-H-R-I-K-A-N-T. What are the 42 quirks? How'd you get that name? So um, I'm a huge fan of Douglas Adams, the uh, sci-fi author. And uh, Uh, those of your listeners who know Douglas Adams know why 42 is such an important number. Okay. You you know 42, right? Is it the, uh, you're talking about the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Yes. Yeah, the the meaning of the, okay. (laughs) The answer to the question of life, the universe and everything. Yes, okay. So... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that. You know, my, my company is called 23 Hours. 
And ah. the reason it's called 23 hours, I was talking to a musician and I said, let's talk about how this works. And he said, well, when you hire me, hmm. uh, it's actually talking to his band, a dude in a band called the Doobie Brothers. Tom Johnson is his name. He said, when you hire the Doobie Brothers, hmm. you're not hiring us for the hour that we're on stage. You're hiring us for the 23 hours it takes to get there. And I said, oh, that's, that's it, man. That's it. Because that's what any of us are doing this Radio Race included, you practiced up until this moment. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. It's the shock jock work. It's the experimentation you were doing. It's the house sound, listening to that and, and transom and, and studying American radio. That's what enabled you to do this. It wasn't the 24 hours of the radio race. It was the years and years of work. It's the hot mic that you left on. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. So Shrikant Joshi, 42quirks.com. Shrikant, thanks for being here, man. Thank you so much for having me. It has been an absolute honor. It's been a pleasure having this conversation, having this chat with you. Thank you so much. And uh, before uh, we sign off, Lauren Freyer of NPR, who heads uh, the India Bureau of NPR, heard your piece, uh, your KCRW Radio Race piece. And uh, she was quite impressed by it. I'll send you a screenshot of uh, what? her comment and yes that's she was quite impressed and she's like please tell him that uh i like what he did and she's looking up other work that you've done uh-oh so well make yeah, sure you hopefully. put it on soundcloud as well okay <laughs> <laughs> now now i'm getting nervous i'm gonna get well good maybe you know I, I did something this is so funny i did an interview with a guy this is a true story people won't believe this it's incredibly crazy this it's a homeless guy so i want you to imagine it's mm-hmm. a homeless guy in nashville he is here just busking, you know, what you call, but like uh, playing music on the streets. Uh, a Swedish television firm came to say, can we record this? We'd like this song. We're doing a documentary on Nashville. So they record the song. And as it turns out, they go back to Sweden. It's on a television show. And it turns out that this guy is homeless. He was at the public library looking it up online to verify it. And he had a number one song in Sweden. Whoa. Is that not the weirdest thing in the world? Wild. Yes. And I mean, I I love stories like that where like somebody, uh, they hear something and they, they resonate with it and then they spread it. Yeah. And it, it, you just never know. You never know. So yeah, well, thanks yeah. for passing that along, man. That's same, That's fantastic. <laughs> My pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for all of this. You've been awfully kind. You've been awfully gracious and uh, I'm, I'm just honored. I, I don't know what to say. 